Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today my very special guest is Franny Moyle. Franny, hi. Welcome. Hello. How lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for being here. Franny Moyle was brought up surrounded by art and artists in England, close to the historic town of Ludlow. And is that our tutor, Ludlow, by any chance? Well, Ludlow is... um a medieval town and a Georgian town. If you walk through Ludlow streets, it's uh, you can see both fantastic medieval architecture, uh, as much of which is Tudor, and fantastic Georgian architecture. And some of the Georgian facades have been put in front of the Tudor ones by the Georgians. It's a very, very pretty town with a wonderful castle. Um, and in fact, the, the castle is where Henry VIII's brother, Arthur, died when uh, he was there with Catherine of Aragon. I'm so glad you brought that up. You've really been surrounded by beauty and art your entire life, haven't you? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very fortunate. I read that you spent your summers in the south of France in um, a medieval village that was close to the Riviera. Yes, that's right. A little village called Saint-Jean-Marie, very close to Vence, which is a uh, a town associated with painters. Matisse lived there for a while, for example. And indeed, you know, my mum's friends there were artists, yeah. Uh, what a, a great childhood. <laughs> I mean, that's just perfect. So you really have been surrounded by art your entire life. And you did study the history of art, correct, at Cambridge? That's absolutely right. I mean, for me, I think there was no other choice. I've always just... Um, been obsessed with, you know, painters more than anything else. I mean, I, I, I love a sculpture and uh, I love literature and I love all forms of art, but painting for me is always really has been something that I'm fascinated by. So you're passionate about art, culture, history, and um, then you became the BBC creative director, I believe. Yeah, I, I went into telly, first of all, and made arts programs, um, became the sort of head of the BBC's arts output for a brief while, and then decided to write books instead and to sort of curtail my career in television. And funnily enough, what I wanted to write about was, was art. And that's just perfect. It's brought us to where we are today to discuss your book, The King's Painter, The Life and Times of Hans Holbein. So welcome, and let's talk about your book. What inspired you to write this? Well, the reason I really wanted to look into the story of Holbein is because I don't know what it's like in America, but in Britain, everyone is so familiar with uh, those images of the Tudor court, of uh, Henry and his wives. You know, we've been 
They've been on uh, our children's storybooks throughout school when we've been learning about the Tudor period. It's always been Holbein's paintings used to illustrate the, that era. And I, I think it's fair to say that in our mind's eye, whenever Henry is mentioned or, or Jane Seymour and Cleves, Holbein's portraits of them pop into our, our mind. He has no rival, for, certainly for, in British culture. His work has defined that moment in history and we see it through his eyes. But it occurred to me that although so many people will be familiar in Britain uh, and, and perhaps again in the States with those images, not that many people knew anything about his life. And that struck me as a little crazy. So I thought it was time to put that record straight. And we're so glad you did. Can you tell us something about his early life? What, what was he like? What, what can you tell us? So he was born in Augsburg in Germany in 1497. And he was the son of another pretty well-known painter, also called Hans Holbein, so they're distinguished from one another now by art historians as uh, by being Hans Holbein the Elder, that's the father, and Hans Holbein the Younger, and that's the Holbein we're talking about today. And um, he worked with his uh, father as a young boy um, in the workshop alongside his brother Ambrosius. And there's some suggestion that from the very off, perhaps his father really understood the supreme talent of his young son because he turns up in a, uh, a couple of paintings by his father where his father smuggles portraits of him as a, a, a little five-year-old boy into one uh, painting, in, into a religious painting, and then another of him and his brother a couple of years later into a further uh, religious painting. And it's as if you know, he wants their legacy to be known. But what is interesting, particularly in the second family portrait that Hans Holbein the Elder paints, is that the whole family is pointing at little hands. His brother has got his arms round him. His father is pointing at him. And it's as if to say, here he is. Here's the star of the future. You know, he's going to be the one that does better than even, even us, in a way. So it did suggest, I think, a, a, a huge degree of, of talent that was evident very, very early on in his career. Absolutely. However, his father's workshop in the end went bust. It was very hard living uh, for painters at that time. And uh, Holbein and his brother went off to find their fortune in Switzerland, in the Swiss city of Basel. And that was really where Holbein's success, where Holbein's success really took off and where he really made his name as a, a stellar artist. So what exactly brought him to the, the English court? Well, in Basel, Holbein established himself as a fantastic painter. Uh, of many things, which we'll perhaps talk about later, largely of religious work and portraiture. And he became the portrait artist of choice for the, for the whole region. One of the most eminent people in Basel at the time was the great scholar Erasmus of Rotterdam. 
And Erasmus was a sort of international superstar. Not only was he a satirist who had written a hilarious best-selling book called In Praise of Folly, but he was also a sort of scholar who was retranslating the Bible from the original Greek, who was writing on important topics uh, on religion, and who was courted, if you like, by all the eminent thinkers and monarchs of Europe. Everyone wanted Erasmus on their books. He was hugely famous. And Erasmus spotted Holbein. So in the 1520s, Holbein, if you like, um, became Erasmus's portrait painter in chief. He produced a, a number of wonderful oil paintings of, of the scholar that the scholar sent to his, his friends in England, to the court of Francis, the first of France, and so on and so forth. And also Holbein began in, illustrating uh, Erasmus's works, and that was then sort of reproduced. So Holbein and Erasmus became very associated. Now, what happened as the 1520s progressed was that the life of a painter in Basel became harder and harder because of the Reformation, because of the rise of Protestantism. Uh, Luther, we're in the moment when Luther, you know, had just nailed his theses on, onto the doors in Wittenberg just a few years earlier. And Basel was quite early Protestant. And the Protestant uh, aesthetic was, was against really religious painting. It was considered idolatrous. And portrait painting was considered indulgent. I mean, the Protestants were ascetic um, in their tastes. And so I think Holbein felt he really needed to find a new market. He knew Erasmus knew a lot of people in England, and Erasmus gave him letters of introduction to the English court. So off he set in 1526, and he arrived in England and was put up by Erasmus's great friend, Sir Thomas More, who at that point was Henry's really first minister, rising star. And that's how he landed. So that's how he came to the attention of King Henry VIII then, through Sir Thomas More? Yes, I mean, that's right. I mean, More and Henry were very close. And by 1527, very early, I mean, he, Holbein arrived in London probably in November 26, because there's a letter from More to Erasmus saying, your, your friend, my dear Moore, has arrived and he's a very great artist. And by February 1527, uh, Holbein was already working for the court, designing paintings and decorations and armour, actually, as well, for a great uh, festivity for the French ambassadors that was going to be held in, in Greenwich. So he came under the, the court's eye very, very fast and was sort of instantly taken up, if you like, uh, to, to, to work for them. Do you believe his paintings are one of the reasons we find the Tudors so mesmerizing? I mean, they are so lifelike. Before them, medieval people were two-dimensional, right? And all of a sudden, we have Holbein, and people, <laughs> people have hair on their chin, and they look like people. Do you think that's one reason we're enamored with him? Or one of the many reasons. Uh, yeah, I think it's why we relate to Holbein because 
even today, by the standards, it wasn't just by the standards of his time, but by the standards of any time, Holbein is astonishing. I mean, I challenge you to find any artist that comes close. There are a handful, I think, in terms of capturing likeness. I mean, I have looked at these works, you know, in the flesh, so to speak, and you, you think that if you blink, the, the sitter might just move or breathe or, you know, they are so astonishing. Um, so I think that's why we relate to them. But I also think that's why he was so successful and so quickly taken up in England, because I don't think anyone had seen anything like this in England, you know, let alone the rest of Europe. I mean, he, he was... He, he was unique across Europe in his ability to create likeness. And his realism, for want of a better word, or his verisimilitude, which is a word often used about him, goes way beyond just capturing people. Because his other fantastic talent was that he was a master of perspective. He could paint architecture that you believed was there, uh, but it was in fact a trompe l'oeil. You know, it was a trick. And in fact, you were just looking at a flat surface, but you would think there was a corridor or a balconet or uh, so on and so forth. And and so uh, it it was his ability not only to create really realistic uh, people, likenesses, characters, but also to place them within an imagined world that also at first glance you took for being the real the real thing and you know the poets in henry's court w- would write praising holbein and they would say he is the the man who can can bring people to life and i think they saw him really as a sort of wonder i often compare it to um you know, early cinema, the kind of novelty and wonder of early cinema and the kind of impact it had. I don't know whether you know the story, you know, when the Lumiere brothers first showed uh, footage of a train coming towards an audience in, in 19th century Paris. You know, the anecdote is everyone was so terrified that the train was really coming towards them and would somehow break out of the screen that they all got up and ran, ran out. Well, I think in a, in a way that's a good way to understand the kind of impact Holbein's work would had. I mean, he could create something that looked like a room with a person in it, and people would be astonished by this and how convincing and persuasive his his um, work was. And that's why he was so successful. That's why the court wanted him. He, you know, they wanted his genius. And that's why all the followers of the court wanted him as well. How long did you study his life and his work, Franny? Well, um, as I think you said in your introduction, I read History of Art at Cambridge. So, you know, I'm an, and I'm kind of old now. So, you know, he's been in the back of my mind ever since I was a student. So we're talking oh, you know, more than 30 years, a lot more. But it, it was only really, I suppose, uh, when I finished my book on J.M.W. Turner and I was really looking around for another subject. So that would be in about 1550. Um, in about 2015. And I thought, yeah, yeah, let's really start to look into Holbein. So that's when I really, really, really started to dig in. And there's a a lot of it in 
London, where I was living at the time. So I was very fortunate. I could go to Windsor Castle and see the amazing works in the Queen's collection, the Royal Collection there. Uh, There's a fair amount in our national galleries as well. And the other place I studied was in Basel, where there's a huge amount of work. And I would urge your listeners, if they do go on a, a European trip, you know, check out Basel's Kunstmuseum and they will see a lot of Holbein there as well. Oh, great idea. Well, what about The King's Painter? How long did it take you to to write this book? Once the research was done, it was a year. It was almost exactly a year, beginning, beginning to end, just nonstop. And actually, in an odd sort of way, lockdown really helped because it should have probably taken me longer But I had nowhere to go. I was just locked up uh, with my family. So I went down uh, into my little garden studio and shut the door and started at eight in the morning and finished at six in the evening and just got through it. (laughs) That is just remarkable because it is such a great book. You have really done something wonderful for us. You've created a, a, a masterpiece. Oh, thank you. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in all things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. I hope I was so prolific. Do you know how many paintings and drawings he created by any chance? Uh, well, certainly paintings, we can't know. He didn't, he didn't keep um, an inventory, or if he did, we haven't got it and I haven't found it. But certainly there are hundreds of his paintings and hundreds of his drawings uh, in, you know, scattered across Europe in, in, in various important collections. I mean, by the time you get to his work in print, because he was also a renowned illustrator, I've already mentioned he illustrated Erasmus's work, but he illustrated a whole host of um, other works, and then those were massively reproduced. So when you talk about his contemporary work in, in print and in reproduction, that will actually go into tens of thousands, without a doubt. And which of these are your favourites? Oh, it's almost impossible to talk about favourites with Holbein because the work is so rich. But given I knew you were going to ask this question, I forced myself <laughs> to pick four. One, just because it is such an extraordinary piece of work, is the dead Christ in his tomb, which is a full-size picture of a dead Christ lying in a very shallow, horizontal niche. And it's in Basel's uh, museum, Kunstmuseum Art Gallery. And it is the most astonishing piece of work. In terms of one of his figures, I'm afraid Henry isn't, isn't on my list because Henry was so ugly, you know, that awful bloated face. And 
you know, Holbein doesn't lie, so he painted the bloated face. But if, if you really want to see a majestic figure in Holbein's work, have a look at his picture of the French ambassador called Charles de Solier, Charles de Solier. Uh, and that is the most wonderful painting of power and majesty. And wow, what a handsome older gentleman he is. In terms of his portraits of women in the National Gallery in London, there is the portrait of the teenager, uh, widowed Duchess of Milan, Christina of Denmark, a, a study of simplicity. She's wearing black widow's gowns and her face uh, is this wonderful heart-shaped face with cherry lips. Gosh, she's, it's fantastic. And then, of course, I have to say the ambassadors that great painting of two French ambassadors standing in, in front of a, a sort of buffet laden with astronomical um, equipment and musical instruments, and that is in the National Gallery in London. And just for its very tantalising mystery, you know, that has to go, go on the list. Oh, definitely. Where can we find you on social media? Well, I'm a tweeter. I'm a bit sporadic on Twitter. You know, you'll see pictures of my dog sometimes, but occasionally you'll actually see me talking about um, Holbein uh, or forwarding things that I find interesting that other historians and, and art historians have come across. On my website, uh, frannymoyle.com, you know, I try to post news about where I'm talking. And of course, when I know when this podcast going out, I'll, I'll put that up as well. And, you know, news of when paperback books are coming out and stuff like that. Absolutely. And you're more than welcome to return at any time. So just let me know. And uh, thank you very much for joining me today. This has been delightful. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later. <laughs>